Genesis chapter 33. As we continue our study through the book of Genesis, um, continuing on in the life of Jacob here, Jacob has been going through some major changes in life over the last couple chapters, right? Chapter 31, chapter 32, there's great growth that we're seeing take place. Along with this growth, there's learning. That's often the case, right? When we grow, we're learning along the way. 20 years of working for his uncle Laban uh, was quite a learning experience, uh, quite a, a growing experience. And we have seen Jacob over these couple chapters um, go from lying to listening to learning to now limping, right? <laughs> he is literally limping through the rest of his life because he has been touched by God, forced into submission, if you remember, right? We likened it to uh, an MMA fight, right? We, or, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something, and you've got to tap out or something is going to be permanently damaged. And Jacob refused to tap out so God said, Jacob, you're permanently damaged. Here you go. Uh, and, and at the end of it all, though, realizing uh, the, the submission is what was needed. And that's what we're going to see now, a, a bit of a new Jacob. Uh, now finally broken, physically broken, spiritually broken, and blessed. And that brokenness brought the blessing, right? Uh, and he is a, he's a new man with a new name and walking in new ways. This new name, of course, is Israel, which means governed by God or conquered by God. And, and he went from Jacob, the dirty, sneaky scoundrel, to now one who is governed by God uh, in the name Israel. And he's now walking in new ways after he has spent this time, he had encountered the Lord. So verse 1, chapter 33, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked there, Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Okay, so Esau first of all, was ready. He, it, Jacob lifted his eyes, looked out, and there Esau, his brother, was coming. His brother, who had vowed to kill him, is coming. And he's not coming alone. As Jacob knew, he's coming with 400 men, 400 warriors, just in case, right? That's, that's his insurance policy, is these 400 men. He, so Esau, he was ready for whatever Jacob might try. Without knowing if you remember last week in chapter 32, we saw that Jacob actually had an escort of angels. Okay, so Esau doesn't know that he's got an escort of angels uh, or that he even had an escort of angels. And he doesn't know that Jacob is a changed man. So what is Esau preparing for? He is preparing for the old Jacob. The old Jacob that tricked him out of his birthright and stole his blessing. What was rightfully his as the older of the twins, Jacob stole from him. He tricked him out of it. And now here, 
That's the, Esau, that's the Jacob that Esau remembers. And Esau was prepared for that. Esau also knew that he had vowed to kill Jacob. And if Jacob's coming back, what does that mean? So he was ready for whatever Jacob might try because he assumed Jacob was going to try something. He remembered who Jacob was and he was ready for that. And, and, and here we see a very different approach than what we might have seen before. So Jacob, he showed great caution as he proceeded, right? He put in his own way, this is Jacob again, he resorts to his plans and his schemes. He puts them in order of value according to his standards, right? He puts the maidservants first and their children. Then he puts Leah and her children, right? Not the wife that he originally wanted. He puts her next. And then Rachel, the wife that he really wanted. And Joseph, he puts them last in line. If there's a battle about to take place... If these 400 men with Esau are coming to take out Jacob and his family, he's like, all right, let's get these guys out front. Let's try to preserve Rachel and Leah, right? So he goes in caution, and he resorts back to, in that caution, he resorts back to fear. He resorts back to his plans. He resorts back to his schemes, And this is what we would all do in the flesh, right? We go back to our ways, even though we take, it's one step forward, two steps back sometimes, right? Or sometimes two steps forward, one step back. We're making a little progress. And I'd say that's really where Jacob's at. He's made great progress. He met with the Lord. God is is now his God. He, He honors God with his life. This is his purpose now. He understands that. He's gotten this blessing from God. And now as he's proceeding, he's, take a step back. Two steps forward, one step back in trying to take matters into his own hands. And we are so like that, aren't we? We take two steps forward, walking in obedience, trusting in the Lord, and then, well, hold on, let me just, let me work out my way a little bit. Let me try to fit God's plan, but with a little bit of my seasonings on it, right? Let me just flavor that my way a little bit, and trying to, in a sense, really control the promises of God, and that's in the flesh, that's what we all do. Now, clearly, Rachel and Joseph were the nearest and dearest to Jacob, and this is Now we see the beginning of some serious uh, animosity that would take place between brothers in the coming chapters that we're going to study in the life of Joseph. And that his brothers are going to take him and throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, pretend that he died, all sorts of messy things that go on among the brothers because of animosity. Now it's, it's kind of this... This is what's happened throughout this dysfunctional family that begets dysfunctional family. You have Esau and Jacob who are at odds their entire life, and Jacob lives this this life of worldliness, really, for 20 years under his uncle Laban and and just being kind of caught up in the desires and cares of the world and, and seeking after more power and influence and money and wealth and and, and possessions and wives and children. And this is what he's going after for 20 years. 
And then finally, of course, he leaves it behind and, and, and the Lord is working in his life, but 20 years now begets a bit of a dysfunctional family, right? Sometimes there's the history or there's the past that we still are holding on to or have to deal with in a sense. So verse 3 Then he, Jacob, crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So while Jacob took this matter into his hands a bit and had his plan, and he showed great caution in his plan, he also showed great courage because he didn't just send them ahead. The old Jacob would have been like, Go ahead, family. He would have done it, guys. Listen, he was, I mean, he tricked his own brother. He tricked his own father. He tricked his own uncle. All the things. This was the life that he lived. He was a liar. He was a manipulator. And now he puts himself out front. He goes before the old Jacob would have sent them ahead but he had been conquered by God. And in, as God conquered him, he has been changed by God. He's a changed man. Now, this isn't like an automatic, though, is it? Right? He was changed by God, yet he's still kind of trying to work plans out his way. Or, and we're going to see, again, he, he's not a perfect man because sanctification is a process, Right? We are being changed. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. There's work to be done. He's not done with us until we see him face to face, right? And so here's Jacob. He's a changed man, changed in his name, changed in his ways. And now here he bows to the ground. Again, not something we would have seen the old Jacob do. The old Jacob, like we said, would have sent his family ahead and tried to scope things out. He already tried that once, not the family, but he sent scouts out ahead. And he sent gifts on ahead, peace offerings on ahead, trying to scope out the situation, figure out how is this going to go? How can I control the situation? But now he goes before a changed man, and he bows himself to the ground so he shows great courage, and in, at the same time, he shows great humility and submission. Remember, as we said in the last chapter, Jacob was forced into submission because he wouldn't tap out. He was forced into submission to the Lord. Now, a Jacob who is submitted to God, submitted to God's plans, submitted to God's ways, who can trust that God has this situation under control with Esau and 400 men men facing against him, this Jacob, now he can too be submitted to his brother Esau. And what a scene this must have been. Just picture, here's Esau, burly, rough, tough, hairy Esau. With his 400 men, you know, right? And here comes Jacob. He takes a few steps and bows to the ground. Gets up, takes a few more steps, 
bows to the ground, gets up, takes it seven times. He's going to see his brother. I mean, he says, what? who is this guy? That's not my brother Jacob. And these 400 men who Esau recruited, hey, we got to go take out my brother. They're like, that guy? I mean, Esau, come on, look at him. But here he comes in submission. Esau with his 400 warriors watching this, but seeing a very, very different Jacob. Jacob who is showing full submission in every way. Now, he, remember, he already sent these gifts on ahead. And in those gifts, it was a peace offering. We talked about it last week a bit, what, what that type of thing meant, a, a covenant offering or a peace offering. And, and what he's saying in, all those things, or in giving of all these things is not to say, look what I have in my great wealth and puffing out his chest, but saying, I, I'm all set. I'm not here to steal anything from you, right? So he's prepared the way for that, but then further he's showing submission and humility to his brother that I'm not here to overpower you either. I'm not here to trick you. As he is demonstrating the very words that he said from the previous chapter, he said, look, I'm your servant, and so now here he is bowing to the ground, bowing to the ground seven times. Finally, Jacob was submitted to God's plan and God's way. So verse four, this is, we, we have the picture of this scene. Esau with his 400 men, Jacob bowing to the ground going before everybody, but verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they, are the, they and their children and bowed down and Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Esau ran to meet Jacob. Now, this would have been an even further scary moment because Esau had vowed to kill Jacob, and now he's running at Jacob. Jacob couldn't take Esau, okay, he, had, he was the one with the brains, but Esau was the one with the brawn, right? Esau's running at Jacob. You can imagine Jacob's like, this is it, and now he's coming after me. But as he runs to him, and, and as Jacob may even be thinking, <laughs> my brother's coming to kill me now, but clearly God had done some work in Esau over these 20 years as well. And we remember that God promised that he would be with Jacob, that he would protect Jacob, and he promised a blessing to Jacob. God is proving here all those things. It's true. Even Esau, who you think is about to kill you, even Esau, who has an army that you would imagine in a second could take you and your family out, 
even in this terrible circumstance or what you perceive as a terrible circumstance, God is in control. And God proves it. That's what God does, guys. When we actually just walk in humility and submission and take the step forward in in submission to the Lord and trusting his ways over our ways, he proves himself every time to be faithful. He proves himself greater than the 400-person army, greater than the adversity of the broken relationship with his brother Esau. God is proving that his ways are glorious as he does something so glorious. I mean, think back. Esau had every right to be angry with Jacob. And you think about in in life, there's people maybe who have wronged you and you have broken relationships with perhaps. Remember that God's ways are glorious and ours are not. And so in the midst of this broken relationship that Esau had every right to be angry at his, at his brother and, and Jacob had every reason to be afraid, as he stepped out in submission to the Lord, God shows that he is faithful. And as God proves his ways, we realize that our ways are not so glorious. Be reminded of Jacob's ways. 20 years working for his uncle Laban. Tricked again and again. Weaving his web of manipulation versus Laban's webs of manipulation. Constantly, this is what's going on. Work seven years and you get a wife and work seven more and you get the wife you actually were working for in the first place. Work six more years and you get all the blessing of the cattle and the livestock. So 20 years of struggles. Yes, there was learning through it. But it didn't have to be so difficult, did it? Maybe we have those 20 years. Maybe you have two years. Maybe you have 40 years. Stop fighting. Stop getting caught up in the ways of the world like Jacob was, running after things that are empty. God proves that his ways are glorious and that he's always faithful. The 20 years of struggle is Jacob working out his ways. And now we see God working out his ways in Jacob. As they arrive, they see each other. Esau runs to meet him. They embrace. He fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. They didn't stop and rehash all the stuff from the past. They just embraced and wept. This was a glorious reunion because God's ways are glorious. 
And here's the thing. It's not just like a, an automatic, right? Jacob came in brokenness and humility. And that brought forth this glorious reunion. Brokenness and humility to God's ways and God's plan that brought him to a place of humility and submission before his brother that now opens the door, gives opportunity for real reconciliation. It gives opportunity for this beautiful reunion between brothers. You see, Jacob didn't show up and defend himself. And I don't know about you, I've seen it happen, I've experienced it. In the midst of broken relationships, somebody shows up and they try to defend themselves. Try to justify their actions. The things, I, I did this because of dot, dot, dot. Here's the reasons. There's no good reason. For Jacob, there was no good reason. And he just came in humility and brokenness. He didn't try to explain. He, he didn't even show up to Esau and say, Esau, Esau here. Or he didn't send a messenger, tell Esau I'm a changed man. That's one that you might hear all the time. Tell him, tell him I'm changed. Or he shows up saying, Esau, spare me. I'm a changed man. Trust me, I'm different. It's not gonna be like it was before. He had to demonstrate the humility and brokenness. He just showed up in that humility. and With a contrite heart, as David writes in Psalm 51, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and had Uriah killed, Bathsheba's husband had, had him killed in battle. Nathan the prophet shows up to David, tells him the story, gives him a picture of, listen, this, this wealthy man went and took the one sheep from this poor man who had only one sheep, and what should we do about it? Put him to death. It's not fair. It's unjust. It's not, he's, it's not righteous. And Nathan the prophet says, you are that man. In this place of brokenness, in this place of just being shredded before the Lord, David writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. A broken and contrite heart is what the Lord seeks from us. When we have sinned against God, what is he looking for from us? Is a brokenness, a contrite heart. Because with that, God can work. If we come to God with our excuses, we come to God with our, 
ideas. We come to God with our justification or we come trying to convince him that we somehow have been changed. It doesn't go very far because that's not humility. But coming in that brokenness and coming with a contrite heart, that's what the Lord seeks from us and that's what brings true reconciliation. That's what brings reconciliation between us and God. Through the blood of Jesus, we come to him in brokenness, humility, here I am. We commit our lives to him, come into my life, be my Lord, be my savior. There's a humility, a broken and contrite heart in that step. And further, humility and brokenness bring reconciliation between brothers. In relationships, I say this all the time, humility wins. You might not win an argument, but you will win the person. What's more valuable? Well, we are so good at winning arguments, aren't we? We're so good at proving our point of trying to say, no, I'm changed, I'm changed. I'm justified, I'm justified. We give all our reasons. But brokenness and humility wins relationship. So further here, then the whole family is celebrated and introduced. Again, we get the picture of what's taking place. It's gone from 400 men backing Esau, Jacob and his family and, and, and all his possessions and his servants, and, and here's Jacob bowing to the ground, bowing to the ground, bowing to Esau, comes running after him. They embrace, hug, kiss, cry together. This is a whole crazy-looking scene, Right? And then the family comes. They're like, it, okay, He's, he didn't kill him. And so the, you, I get a picture of the family kind of in, you know, a little timid, just stepping forward, getting a little closer. And Esau gets this picture. Who's this? Oh, that, that's your nephews. This is my family. And there's this joy and celebration. And who are these people? Just a further beautiful look at the work of reconciliation. Verse eight, then Esau said, what do you mean by all the company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. We first see contentment in Esau. But there's a contentment in what he has gained in life. I have enough. And it's a contentment in just of his possessions. I don't need your gifts, Jacob. 
I have enough. He had been a blessed man and was, was content in what he had gained. And they go back and forth. And in the Eastern culture, acceptance of a gift such as this, and we studied that last week, all the things that Jacob sent ahead, and that's what Esau is asking about. What's with all the gifts? I don't need it. I'm a powerful man. And what he's even saying to Jacob is, I don't need your gifts. You think you stole the blessing from me, but I'm still a blessed man. But listen, he's blessed by this worldly standard, right? It's just stuff. And there's a difference in perspective here between Jacob and Esau. And as they go back and forth, as I said, in Eastern culture, acceptance of this type of gift would be a bond of friendship. And that's what Jacob now desires from Esau. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the possession or power over another man or anything like that. It's just about relationship. And if Esau were to receive this gift, then they are bonding this relationship, this friendship. They've been at odds, remember, we talked about throughout the chapters. They have been at odds their entire lives, from birth, as Jacob was grabbing after the heel of Esau. They're completely opposites, at odds with each other. And now here, Jacob is seeking friendship. And as, as Jacob is, is explaining this to him, he's like, look, it's not about the stuff. But hear this, he says, God has dealt graciously. That's what it's all about, actually, the grace of God. Jacob sees his whole life. He looks back at the 20 years of him clinging to the ways of the world, and then before that, walking in this life of lies and manipulation. And he's looking back at his life and saying, man, I don't deserve any of it. And that's the picture of God's grace. God has dealt graciously with me, saying, I don't deserve it. What I deserve is judgment. What I deserve is to be smacked around because I am so hard-headed. And yet, look at what I have because of the grace of God. And in the, through all of it and all that Jacob had, he still wrestled with God and cling to, the, to Jesus for blessing. I'm not letting you go until you bless me because there was a perspective that had changed. And that perspective was now about spiritual blessing, not just more stuff. He had plenty of stuff, but it was about spiritual blessing. And now here's Jacob saying, man, God is so good. It's not just, you know, he has, I have plenty too, and I'm giving out of the abundance because God has given me great things. But even further, God has been so gracious to me. God has been gracious and not wiping me out a long time ago. God has been gracious in this encounter here and now, recognizing it wasn't even about Esau being gracious, but it was about God being gracious. 
the grace of God, because of the grace of God, Jacob's saying, I am what I am and I have what I have. Let that be our proclamation of faith. Because of the grace of God, through relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've been studying so much about the grace of God on Sunday mornings, right? In the book of Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's all about the grace of God. And all that, all that we have and all that we are comes back to the grace of God. Through relationship with Jesus Christ, we are what we are. His workmanship. A beautiful work of art. And through the grace of God, we have what we have. All the blessing, the spiritual blessings and the heavenly places, everything we have is from above. James says every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow, no variation of turning. Jacob has that greater eternal perspective. In this moment, right, he goes like this. Like most of us in life, we have ups and downs. We walk by faith two steps forward, one step back. But right here and now, because of the grace of God, and this grace, what he's saying, I'm giving it because the grace of God is not to be withheld. This same concept is taught throughout the Bible. The grace of God is what the Bible's about. And the giving of the grace of God is what the Bible's all about. And God has given his grace to us. And, and as believers, as the body of Christ, he's given us gifts. And those gifts, like the gifts that Jacob had, he said, look, these aren't for me. I can't withhold the, the goodness of God I can't withhold out of the blessings of God's grace that he's given to me. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of giving of the grace of God here. And we see it specifically, Paul writes about it, Ephesians 4, Romans chapter 12. But these gifts that have been given to each one as a measure of the grace of God are not to be withheld. God's grace is given so that we might give it to one another. And he gives that grace through gifts. Each one, each part of the body of Christ has a gift to give. And let me say, guys, if we're not sharing our gifts, then we're robbing the body of Christ. We are withholding the grace of God from one another. So Esau took it, it says. In that, he's accepting the apology. He's accepting the relationship, the friendship. He's accepting the peace offering and true reconciliation between brothers. Continuing, verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. 
And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that I uh, that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Esau wanted to now reel Jacob in and protect and, and be hospitable. And, but in a sense, there's a little bit of a, a big brother power struggle here and saying, hey, come here. Let's go on a journey. You're going to come, you're going to come home with me, right? And we're going to all go and everything's going to be great and happy. Uh, but Jacob looked for a, a safe distance, perhaps out of fear, right? Because he's like, you know what? Maybe, maybe Esau's gracious right now, but, you know, next week if we're hanging out, he thinks about what happened back then, and then he decides, you know what? Forget this, <laughs> and he takes him out. Maybe that was the case. Perhaps it was out of, you know, wisdom to just keep peace. A little safe distance between family. Hey, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. We'll still be friends, but from a distance. Perhaps, though, there was a bit of distance that he wanted between him and the, the worldliness of the life that Esau lived. Because his relationship with God as he is now governed by God, is more important even than his further reconciliation with Esau. So they went their separate ways. Jacob went and he settled down in Sukkoth. And that word means booths or tents. And what does he do? He builds a house. He builds even a, a little, all these booths, a little settlement in a sense there in but we think back, we remember the heritage of Jacob, which is his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. They were pilgrims, right? They were sojourners, just passing through. And we have that picture of, of life as a believer, that we are sojourners. Peter writes about it. That's who we are as Christians. We're passing through. This is not our home. We're going to be with Jesus in eternity, and so there's that picture that we have of, of an eternal perspective as we are sojourners living, walking through this life for eternity, living for eternity. So Jacob, too, was a sojourner before he stopped for 20 years. And he worked for his uncle Laban. And then after that, now he's journeying again. He's, he's a pilgrim. And now here he comes to a place and he stops and he settles. Losing sight of the eternal perspective. He needed to keep moving on. And he, yet Jacob tries to settle. Doing now what seems comfortable to him. He settled things with Laban. He 
He settled things with God. He settled things with Esau. So now he figured, why not settle down? You know what, guys? doesn't end, though, does it? We have never arrived. We could settle all of the things that we want to settle. We could think that everything is taken care of. Oh, I'll take care of this in life. And once that is order, in order, I'll put that in a box and it'll be great over here. And then I'm going to go and I'll face this problem. I'm going to fix this problem. And I'll, once that's all settled, I'll put that in a box and leave it over here. And then we go over here and there's another problem that we face in life. And we've got to settle all of our affairs. So we think. But that takes our perspective off of eternity. That puts us in a place where we are no longer pilgrims. We're no longer sojourners. We're just, you know what? I've got all my affairs settled and let me settle down now. It puts us in a place of complacency. We get comfortable. We get lazy. We try to just coast. And we're not, maybe we're trying, we're just maintaining our faith rather than adding to our faith as we're told to do. So he's doing now what seems comfortable to him. Everybody else has a house, why not me? I'm gonna build myself a house. I've dealt with all the problems. I've wrestled with God. I've got the limp to prove it. So now I'm gonna settle down. He lost sight of the future. He lost sight of God's plans. He lost sight of the spiritual blessing. And what he's doing is getting comfortable again in the ways of the world. Here's an interesting connection. The first mention of this word house in the Bible is connected to Lot. Or Lot had a house there that he built in Sodom. And Lot, man, was he caught up in worldliness. That's what he was all about. In love with the ways of the world and the things of the world. And now here's Jacob building a house. Going back to the ways of Lot. Going back to even his own ways of connecting to the world and settling. Settling with the desires of this world, with the comforts of this world. I'm not telling you, you can't be comfortable. You can't enjoy life and you, know, you can't have a house. I'm not telling you this, but we have to keep our perspective on eternity and realize, guys, that all of the things of this world are going to fade away. We are living for eternity. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jacob built a house when he needed to keep sojourning and keep pressing on in faith. Verse 18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came to Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he, brought the parcel, he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, 
Shechem's father for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, he comes to a great place. Looked like a, a great place of promise, going back to the land of his father. But God told him to go to Bethel. And it's not a bad place that he's gone to, right? And, and there's, sometimes there's not, it's not bad to go to the places we know are good places. To be maybe reminded, oh, God was once here. And even he's thinking, if I go back to the land of my grandfather, God was with him. God would be with me too. He's coming to a, a great place of promise, but it's not a place of obedience. And he's building an altar there. So he's coming to a great place and he's doing a great thing. But it's not the best thing. It's not the right thing because he's not in full obedience to God. He even names it. He gives honor to God. He names it. This, the name of the place, right? El Elohe Israel. Is, it means God of Israel. It's an altar to the God of Israel. And what's his name has been changed to Israel. Governed by God. And now he's giving honor to God. You're my God. But he's not walking in obedience. This is a picture of hypocrisy, isn't it? We would claim, God, you're my God. And we make altars and we sing praises. And we come to a good place. We go to church. It's a good place. It's a good place to be in the presence of, you know, with other brothers and sisters, and, and it's a good thing to do to worship God. But maybe we're not walking in obedience. Maybe we're not actually honoring God with our lives. We're just coming to a good place and doing a good thing. We think sometimes, too, if we go to the good place, it will fix us. Everything's terrible in life. Well, let me go to church. Okay, it's a good place. But you still need surrender. And we do a good thing. We worship and honor God. Maybe even serve in church and we get involved. That's a good thing. But are we lacking surrender still? And we think even that all that, we go to church and we are, we're worshiping God and we think that's godliness enough, isn't it? Yet we're walking in clear disobedience to God. And we think doing these good things for God in a good place, we think that it will cover our disobedience. I'll close with this, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You don't have to turn there, just one verse. This is as Saul has walked in rebellion. King Saul, the first king of Israel, he has walked in rebellion. He has walked in disobedience to God several times and now is being rejected as king. Samuel said this, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord 
as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We think we're going to just cover sometimes. I'm going to go to church, I'm going to worship, and that's going to fix me. And we do that on Sunday, and you guys do it on Wednesday too. But what happens on Monday and Tuesday? What happens on Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Or even during the day on Wednesday, or the afternoon and the evening on Sunday? But we think we show up, we go to a good place, we do a good thing, and we think it's going to just cover and it's going to solve our disobedience. Or that it will solve our clinging to worldliness, settling down, becoming complacent in worldliness. It's not going to solve anything. We need more of Jesus. We need to walk in obedience. The more of Jesus, the more obedience. Asking each and every day for a a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Because you know what, guys? We're just like Jacob. We're going to keep taking two steps forward, one step back. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we could keep taking two steps forward, two more steps forward, two more steps forward. Two more steps forward. With our eyes set on eternity, knowing that we're passing through, not settling for the things of this world and in the ways of this world. Amen?